0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Shots Fire podcast. We're going to be discussing the mass shooting that occurred in Maine over the last couple days where the suspect has now been found dead. We're going to give you a law enforcement perspective that you're not going to hear on mainstream media. So
1: we're going to break down the chain of events and what it takes to manage a scene of this magnitude. And we're going to start with the time of events as it started. So this incident happened October 25th of 2023, which happened to be on a Wednesday, the very first 911 call came in at 6.56 p.m. Yeah, they an active shooter. We have multiple injuries. At the Just-In-Time Recreation Center in Bowling Alley. Here's where it gets really interesting. Two minutes later at 6.58, there was four non-uniform officers working in the area, and they responded within two minutes. At 7 p.m., just four minutes after that, the very first uniformed, Lewiston PD officer arrived on scene. So within four minutes, there was five police officers on scene. At 7.08, eight minutes later, uh, the shooter has left and has gone to the second location to the Schminigan's Bar and Grill where he opened fire there. That's the first call that came in at that location. And at 7.13 is when the first officer arrived to that location we should note that the officers were at the first location and then had to divert from that first scene to the second location. And that's what the little time delay uh, uh, in response was for those officers getting to that location. This is where I think the, the law enforcement agencies and Lewiston Police Department did a phenomenal job in, in, with their communication because at 8 p.m., which is one hour and four minutes after the very first 911 call, they released the photos of the suspect, which to me is absolutely impressive how fast they were working. At 8.09 PM, nine minutes after that, the state of Maine ordered a shelter in place for, uh, for their citizens in that community, which in itself is, is very impressive, very fast communication. At 8.26, 17 minutes after the first call, the neighboring cities put their, their community into lockdown as well to protect those citizens. At 826, oh, I already said that, at, uh, at 917, which is two hours and 20 minutes after the first 911 call, the police released video of the suspect's car. So at this point, just two hours into it, they've released a photo of the suspect and video of the suspect's car, which is very fast police work. At 1052, almost just under four hours, they had named the suspect in this crime and at 11.30 p.m., the suspect's vehicle, vehicle had been located. At 3.13 a.m., the neighboring uh, communities had also is issued a shelter in place. And at that point, that's when they learned that the suspect may have gone and started uh, driving to other locations. And then we skipped forward on to Friday night. At 7.45 p.m. is when they located the suspect who had uh, a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And they located that suspect in, in the back of a trailer. So chain of events, a lot happened. The agencies acted very quick, got that information out there. And in, in this episode, there's a lot of stuff to cover. Um, so I think we need to really just cover the first call and, and maybe talk about the, the community and the size of, of Maine and, and that.
0: Yeah. So Let's let's talk about the the size of Lewiston. Uh, first of all, it's it's a town of thirty six thousand people, so it's very small. And the whole in, entire state of Maine is small. And you know, Maine is is been considered one of the safest states in, in America. So, uh, to have a uh, an incident of this magnitude occur in the state of Maine is is um, well, it's tragic anywhere, but it's it's uh, definitely crippling to a small state in a small community like this. So let's dive into that. So. The first call comes in just prior to seven o'clock at the uh, bowling alley Mm -hmm. where seven people were found, shot and killed there. Um, You have a department of 82 sworn police officers in the town of Lewiston. I would only imagine that uh, a a department that small in in a city that small, I would probably guess no more than 10 cops on duty at that given time between a swing shift and a graveyard shift overlapping each other. So you have these officers that respond to the first shooting scene with that many casualties. That's, that's a huge, huge undertaking. I mean, that's a massive scene. You're talking, you know, witnesses um, to talk to. You don't know where the gunman is. You've got multiple uh, deceased individuals on scene. You've got multiple people being transported via ambulance to the hospital. Um, that's a huge undertaking. And that time of night, I, I would probably venture to guess maybe a lieutenant is on duty you know, maybe not, maybe that, you know, and the admin has probably gone home at that point. Yeah. Um, but let's say you have a Lieutenant there. I mean, that whoever the highest ranking official is on duty at that time, they're in charge of that entire city. So they're in charge of this scene. There's a lot going on. So then fast forward uh, a few minutes later when they start getting the second 911 calls of the second shooting in the same town, having to divert your resources to another shooting location I, I that's hard to manage. I mean, those cops, I, I couldn't imagine what they're feeling, what they're thinking. Um, now you got to be concerned that this shooter is out on the loose. And if he's already shot two <clears throat> shot up two locations, where's the third location going to be? Yeah. And, and can, do you even have the resources to get there? Yeah. And just just having to manage these scenes, but also think to yourself how how am I going to start getting more resources to to help us out on this? Because, you know, the medical staff, I mean, it says that there were over a hundred off-duty hospital staff responded to help at the scenes itself, but then also for the victims at the hospital. So you had a hundred hospital staff members who were off-duty at home, got a phone call and responded to the hospital just, just to help out. So when you think of all the first responders involved in something like this, you have Very minimal resources as it relates to the police officers that are working. Then you also have to consider the ambulances, the medical crew, hospital staff. Um, In a small community like this to manage all that, it's a lot. And this, I mean, this is the first time this has happened in that community. So- Well, just think of the
1: influx of victims. I mean, that's mass casualty flooding a hospital. Yeah. They are generally not designed and set up and probably have never handled something to that magnitude. I mean, and you're, you're talking, you only have so many rooms and beds and
0: staff and supplies that's, Yeah, you're overwhelming a hospital. Also, you a are, different side. And you had mentioned into the, to the police departments and, and law enforcement credit is they had this information out quickly. I mean, that, that means that tells me that they've rehearsed this, they've communicated it. They, they had a plan in place that if something like this were to happen, they would be able to manage them manage it. And I mean, they did a phenomenal job. Well, look at statistically,
1: four to six minutes for for the first officer to arrive on scene of an active shooter. In this incident, two minutes. Four officers were on scene in two minutes.
0: Yeah, and you know, historically on an active shooter event, when you have mass casualties, the the incident is over within five minutes of the first shot mm-hmm. to, to the last shot, and typically, the shooter's dead on scene um, after a self inflicted gunshot wound or being shot and killed by police within minutes of the actual shooting itself. So, but in this case, you have the shooter going to a second location and committing another shooting, doesn't stay on scene, actually flees. And now everyone's in a state of panic because where is this guy? And like I said, is there going to be a third shooting scene? So um, yeah, there's just, there, there's a lot to talk about here, I guess, from the law enforcement perspective um, I mean, we have a, a ton of notes here. Um, yeah. and we've been pa- paying close attention to it. Um, let's break it down through like the first, like the command structure. How do, how does a
1: command structure happen? And, and you look at, like you talked about a super small agency with minimal officers on duty on a Wednesday night, and then you already have a mass casualty at, at one scene, and now you have a second. So at this point, you're, Police departments are only generally staffed for what happens, not what could happen. Mm-hmm. It's what happens. And in this case, one scene is overwhelming. And now you have two. so let's let's really break down how
0: you get resources and how does that structure look. Yeah. so I think the first thing that has to happen is you have to establish some type of command post. and in, in in a command post, for something like this or anything, could be in the in a parking lot nearby or, or you know somewhere close to the scene where you can start uh, delegating resources to and then branching you know your resources out to where you need them to be. So your command post might be in the trunk of a police car, to begin with. Uh, from there, I think you as this thing grows and you're you're getting more resources coming in and you're making phone calls. Uh, you're obviously you're going to transition your command post probably to a a separate location where it can manage and host a lot of different people. Uh, Because in this case, I mean, multiple state uh, resources and SWAT teams and officers responded. You've got multiple federal agencies that responded to the scene. Um, You you have to be able to have a location where you can house all those people and be under one command uh, so that everything isn't just super chaotic and people are doing what they want to do. And the reason for that is you have to systematically put people in place where you want things either searched um you know looking for evidence you're looking for the bad guy you're trying to figure out who this person even is um, and then all these tips are filtering in and how are you going to manage all that so you have to have something in place to, to be able to um, to manage all that and so I think the command post and the structure of all this plays a huge vital role in this successful outcome of of a situation like this. I, I think if it's not done right, um, things like this tend to fall apart and then it just, you're just adding more confusion to, to the situation. So again, I thought, I thought they did a, just a freaking fantastic job of getting all of that set up really early on and being able to get to delegate the resources. Um, in the press conference, it said that during this whole chain of events that, uh, dozens of search warrants were executed, um, throughout this whole process. And what I want people to know is when you read that, you, you just think that these cops went to a location and searched you know, wherever, whether it was a home, the family's property, whatever. Um, there's a lot that goes into a search warrant and those take a lot of time. For one search warrant can take a couple of hours at a minimum. So I think the important thing for people to understand too from our perspective in law enforcement is just the amount of time that goes into every little thing involved in this whole thing up to, to include a search warrant. I mean, you're talking about dozens of cops sitting in an office at a computer, just typing away as fast as they can to then get that off to a judge, to get a judge to sign the search warrant and then getting a team together to go execute that search warrant, you know, safely as possible. So there's planning involved in that there's operation planning involved in it. There's, um, the initial, um, authorization of the search warrant by whoever wrote them, the detectives, there's a lot that goes into that. And so um, you ju- just the amount of time I think spent on the, the little things that aren't talked about is, is so big in the, in how this whole thing plays out. Well, there's a lot of
1: logistics it, and you talked about having your command post starting at your car well, that is going to move. And then you're going to move to a large location, like you said, where you can house all those people. But this isn't just like a a 12 hour call. This went on for multiple days and it's going to continue. And that command post is going to stay in that position and it's going to slowly dissolve. But you have all these other agencies, the feds, different states, local agencies, all have their own command structure as well. But then from, from our perspective, you have those officers that are out there working for long hours and they don't want to go home. No one ever wants to say, I want to go home and t- go to bed. So you have to have logistics saying this team is done working. You've already worked X amount of hours. You're done working. You're going home, but now you have to fill that gap with another resource. Yeah, And then, then you talk about sleep, but you also have like food. You have to bring supplies in. You have to provide food for people. You have to provide drinks, water, different storage, paperwork, computers, like all that stuff has to get set up. It's not like just, oh, you walk into an office. All that stuff is brought in. You talk, there's mobile command instant uh, uh, mix, like mobile instant command centers or semi truck and trailers that have mobile command posts like the FBI has, and they can drive that up and they have that set. But you're talking about all that communication and you have to have somebody at the top of that. And for this case, his name is Mike Saw, I'm gonna botch this, but Sawshuck, He's the, the state of Maine's public safety commissioner. Not every state has a public safety commissioner, but the, the state of Maine does. And he's he's appointed by the governor and he is basically the one that would run major incidents and this being one. And he has a really interesting background. We'll we'll, we'll take 30 seconds on this, but he's a retired police chief from uh, the state of Oregon, Oregon in, yeah. in Portland uh, where he was a chief in 2011 and then came over here and now he runs that. So you have someone that has has all the police knowledge and background and his career is quite um, diverse in law enforcement. And now he's, he's heading off of this. It's amazing. And and no wonder this whole system was so effective in their timeframes were so fast. So there's a lot of logistics.
0: Yeah. Logistically, it's a nightmare. And whoever's establishing each logistic for everything that you just talked about, there is somebody in charge for each one of those things. And that is your role right we talk about role and responsibility i mean that that is your role logistically so there, there's just so much involved in these um that that people just you know they, they don't understand or they don't get to see it uh, behind the scenes uh so let's talk about um you know so three hours after the shooting they end up finding his car um at the boat launch and that's where the um that's where i think the manhunt really kicks off and yeah they have something to at least work off of right? So the, well, the, the second, the, and you said how
1: small of an agency is and just think you have two mass casualties, two active shooter scenes in your city. The police chief was the second officer on scene to find that car, the police chief, like he's not like, he's actively searching. Uh, It shows how fast resources get depleted and his involvement with it with his department. I mean, that's that's commendable.
0: Yeah. It it really is. And so in and, and you talked about the two crime scenes that are still happening. I mean, we talked about uh CSI and kind of the involvement of managing a crime scene like that. I mean, what people don't understand is is everything that goes into that. So for every person that goes into that crime scene past the that yellow tape is get is, is accounted for. Who they are, what time did they enter that crime scene? And then when they leave that crime scene, what time did they what time do they leave that crime scene and then what exactly are they doing what evidence is being collected uh you know photographs i mean there there's a ton of involvement in processing one scene not alone two and then to take it a step further you have all of these crime scene um uh, folks that are collecting all this stuff that all of that evidence has to get booked somewhere um, so we can't forget about that as well. I mean, all the CSI and evidence technicians and people that were out there processing these scenes—that's a lot of work in a ton oh, yeah. of hours. Um, it's not done spent. either. No, it's not. They're,
1: they're going to be there for days processing that because you have items probably everywhere—bullet holes, fragments. They're going to be looking at ballistics, the where the shooter was, and we're purposely not saying the shooter's name, and nor will we say that. But that's why I'm referring to shooter. But within that scene you have people that are deceased that you want to respect. Then you have injured and those injured people have to be accounted for. And and now you're talking about logistics of getting medics in the fire department into those people. Some are walking wounded, you know, they can leave, but some can't leave. Mm -hmm. So now you have to have medics respond in there. So you're talking about potentially seen contamination, tracking and moving things from one place to another so you can get victims out. And then you have those that are not injured, but are traumatized or have witnessed that. So now you have to manage witnesses and you don't want those people flooding, but, but this was an active shooter scene. So
0: people were flooding and they they are leaving. Yeah. So you have two active investigations going on times. Yeah. With the shooter still on the loose. So yeah. Um, there's so
1: much just with with just one scene, and then you have to duplicate that, and yeah. I, I can't imagine. And the numbers will come out as time goes by of how many officers and resources were were involved in this.
0: I, oh yeah, I'm it's going to be a lot. Yeah, yeah. hundreds. Um, it, and and it's important to note too that when you're in charge of these things, it you have to know where everybody is. You you have to know where every tactical team is searching, what's been searched, what hasn't been searched, uh, because the last thing you want is either duplicating someone else's efforts or you missed something because it wasn't documented where a certain team of officers may have been searching. So there is no chance to go rogue on something like this and just kind of go off and do what you want to do. It is, it is very systematic. Um, and it has to be done like that for, for a reason. Um, so, okay. We talked about, let's talk about the mental health piece of this. A lot of people want to know why he had guns yeah, there's, there's um, folks out there that are saying that he was committed in a mental health facility for two weeks back in July, July, August um, by his command staff in the Army Reserves. Um, I don't think any of that has been verified at this point. And people want to know why his guns weren't taken. Maine has a pretty unique law of when you can and cannot take somebody's firearms if you've been put on a mental health hold. So let's talk about that and explain to people um, what it takes to be put on a mental health hold and why this individual still had his firearms, which is, I think, the biggest mystery and question of all that everybody wants answers on right now.
1: So the gun, guns part is very interesting. What we know now is that he owns multiple guns, don't have an exact number, but he owns multiple guns. Uh, they found a long, which they're describing as a long gun in, in his vehicle, and then on his person where he was found, they found two additional guns and they, they didn't describe what they were. That's three guns, but they said he owns multiple guns and that he had purchased guns. All guns were purchased lawfully. Some he had purchased long ago and then others were very recent. And one one report that we saw was, was as early as 10 days prior to the actual shooting on, that, on, on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Which is the 10-day cooling-off period for for buying a gun? In the state of Maine, has an interesting law. It's the yellow flag law, which means it's basically a, a gun retention law. Where if you are put on a involuntary, there's two different two different uh, holds. It's voluntary versus involuntary. If you're put on an involuntary, which means I do not want to go, but you're putting me on a hold. You could describe that here in a in a sec. But if you are put on an involuntary hold, then the yellow flag alert comes up and based on the criteria, once you're flagged, then they actually remove and have the the legal authority to go and remove your guns. Um, in, in that law in the state of Maine, the yellow flag law actually went into effect January 1st of 2020 and it's been utilized 82 times. We had talked quite a bit about it. We don't know if that's a lot or a big number or a low number, if it's effective or if it's not but we want to point out details on that. So do you, you want to talk about actually putting people on a hold 5150s in the state of California's call. I'm not sure if it's consistent. Yeah.
0: Well, I think across the board, I mean, people, people get confused on, you know, when, when someone can be placed on a mental health hold and what a voluntary and involuntary commitment is. And to, to make it as simple, as simple as possible, if you have somebody that is a um, danger to themselves or others, um, then they could be placed on a, on a mental health hold, meaning if someone's suicidal or they have some ideology of wanting to hurt themselves or kill themselves, and they are vocal about that, that gives the authority, us the authority, the authority to place them on a mental health hold. Uh, and here in California, it's a 72-hour hold, which means they would be placed in a hospital uh, for no more than 72 hours. And within that 72-hour frame, a mental health worker or a psychologist doctor would come in, speak to that individual And if they deem that person needing to be placed in a mental health facility for further evaluation or maybe it's medication, then they have the authority to prolong that and go place these people in a mental health facility. We as law enforcement officers do not have that capability. We only have the capability of putting them on that 72-hour hold. And that 72 hours is, is at least here in California. Where I think some cops probably might take a shortcut is you have people that are telling you, yes, I'm suicidal, or yes, I have these ideologies of wanting to hurt myself or cause harm to myself. And the officers may say, okay, well, would you like me to drive you down to the hospital? And you can go seek treatment there. And and if the person agrees to it, that would be a voluntary transport, I guess. You're then just transporting, you're providing a transport for them of wherever they are to the hospital, dropping them off and leaving. And there's no documentation of, putting them on a hold, nothing. It's it's literally, you're basically acting as a taxi cab driver for that person to get into the hospital. I don't know that that happened in this case because I don't think so far there's been any record finding that he's been, that he was actually placed on a hold by law enforcement or the army. But what I would say is if you're going to those calls as law enforcement and you come across somebody who's feeling that way and they're, they're telling you that, I would I would go ahead and just say, put them on the hold. If you have the authority to do it, you put them on the hold. There is no voluntary-ish to it. I mean, no. they're going to go. Even if they say they want to go, you're still going to put them on the hold, meaning you're going to fill out the form or whatever it is that you're going to do. But it's documented, and you're placing them on that hold so they don't have the choice to just walk out of the hospital as if you just drove them there. Because if you drive them there and drop them off and say, oh, the lobby's right there, go ahead and check yourself in, They don't have to, they could literally turn around and walk out and there's, there's nothing anybody can do about that. So I think that's the slippery slope of the whole voluntary and involuntary commitment on a mental health hold.
1: Yeah. And that's what, in this case, the suspect, there's a lot of focus and a lot of media talk about mental health and all that. And and family members have said that he was hearing voices and and bad, some bad
0: thoughts, but So we know what, so we know based on that, we know that there was obviously a mental health component to this with him. We, we know that we, we already know that, 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 you know, potentially plays a role in this whole thing. Um, whether it's documented that he was put on the hold and I, and I guess we're talking about this because people want to know why the guns were taken. Right. Why did he have access to these firearms and how was he able to go purchase these firearms days leading up to these shootings? There's gonna be have to. There's gonna have to be a, uh, an investigation involved in that, and whether or not he was placed on a hold, who put him on the hold, and look, quite frankly, if he was, and and that comes out in the investigation, and something slipped through the cracks where no one went out and seized his firearms or flagged him in a system where when he went and bought those guns, then someone's gonna to have to be held accountable for that.
1: Yeah, that's. I think that'll be that's part of the investigation piece that is ongoing and it's yeah. going to be ongoing. And I imagine in, in months to come. We'll and I do like the
0: response, in. you know, a, a lot of reporters are asking that and their response right now is they just don't have that information and there. That is one of the first things they're going to look into. Yeah. You know, because they have to.
1: Yeah. Um, so they he, don't, they don't have any information to support that he's been on a put on a hold. I mean, that's, I think it's important to put out there at this point and that he lawfully bought the guns it's what's in that middle that the investigation is, yeah. is what we're going to find out at some point.
0: Yep. And, uh, you know, there, a lot of politicians are, their first reaction to, to hearing this is, um, you know, the president came out and said that he's hit up Congress about, you know, sh- tightening, um, firearm laws. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know, look, this isn't a political show and we're, we we do not get into that, but, I don't know if, if, you know, just taking the guns away is is the answer. I I do think in America, we have a huge mental health problem and these mass shootings are, are happening on a regular basis. And it it almost seems like for every mass shooting that we have correlating back to the suspect, there's a mental health piece to this. So I I think we need to tighten down on the, on the mental health uh, stuff and we need to start taking that more serious, I think. And I think States need to be more involved in putting more money into mental health hospitals and restricting people's access to firearms who who are deemed mentally un- unstable.
1: Yeah, and what's interesting about the mental health aspect is it extends beyond what people picture as crazy and and suicide like mental health does extend beyond that and in one of the press conferences they actually addressed that and said that there's a lot of first responders that have mental health Um, concerns, but they don't even amount to, like the yellow flag laws or to be taken away. So mental health, I mean, it it expands all over, you know, it's depression, it's anxiety, all that. So it's not not just hearing voices, mental health expands beyond. And I think we get in talking about the mental health aspect is it's not just about the mental health of this suspect and what he was doing. Look at the chain of events that the mental health is gonna play on those responding officers the, the first responders, the medical staff at the hospitals, the CSI teams that have to go and photograph and, and, and uh, document all that, the crime scene or, or the evidence processing. Once evidence leaves the scene, well, it's got to go to a warehouse to get processed there and stored. The mental health of that and what they're seeing, it's a small community. A lot of people know people that know people that may have been there. Yeah. I mean, there's, this is massive. So, the state of Maine did a phenomenal job already. And what they did is they set up two different uh, centers focused on mental health. And one center was for victims only. And that was if you were injured or if you were there or you're psychologically affected by that incident being there, they've set that up and they've asked for the, the media to respect that and not to go there because they want people to go and get help and remain confidential but the state of Maine has also recognized the mental health for the community. And they set up one across town at another location, actually the Ramada Inn hotel for anyone else that, that may be feeling that they need to see somebody they've opened that up. So the, the state of Maine is already
0: is like, they're doing a they're great ahead job. of the game. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They're ahead of the game. And they're also taking care of all, like you said, all the first responders that were involved in that. And, you know, we talked about all these cops that were there. I mean, those, those officers are working long, long hours. I mean, they're tired. The chief came out and said that he had to force a couple of some of his officers to go home or go to the station and sleep for a couple hours because these guys just didn't want to give up. You're trying to search for this person. So these things are such a, uh, you, you know, it's easy to watch it on TV and you just see these cops walking around searching things and driving around in bearcats and armored vehicles. And there, there's no way the media could ever capture the behind the scenes of this type of stuff. And look, I've, I've never personally been involved in, 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 a mass shooting like this. Um, recently we had a, a, an escaped inmate, um, from a local uh, jail around here in our community. And we were on a, you know, a couple day manhunt for him. Um, so being a part of that, it, it just, it just wears on you. I mean, it's just tiring. It's, you know, the community is, was in lockdown. Schools were closed. I mean, you weren't allowed to leave your house. People were shutting, completely shutting all their lights off inside their house because they didn't want to become a target for this guy. If he was out there in the community, I mean, I can only imagine for those, um, two or two days that that was going on. Um, I think how terrified probably that community community was. I mean, and and knowing the suspect's background being in the military. Yeah. A lot of people were concerned, you know, I mean, he knows how to use a firearm. Um, I, I think it actually said that he was a firearms instructor for the army reserve. So he knew what he was doing. Um, anybody that knows how to handle a weapon like that, uh, that knows the damage it can do that's in dangerous hands for mm-hmm. sure. So, you know, these cops that are out there searching for him in these wooded areas and, you know, anywhere, I mean, they're putting themselves at serious risk. He's armed with a rifle. Um, though, I mean, that's, that's dangerous. Yeah. He can take a, a shot from a very far distance if he's perched up somewhere ready to ambush. And there's not a whole lot you're going to do about that, you know? Yeah. So Thankfully he didn't decide to do that. I guess uh, um, if there's one good takeaway, it's, it's, he did decide to go take his own life and not shoot it out with the cops or go harm or shoot and kill anybody else. But I don't know that that's uh this is a tragic event. And I think it's just, this stuff is just happening way too often. Yeah. Let's talk about the tips really quick. Yeah. 821 tips came in. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. And every single one has to be vetted. Yeah. So of 821 tips, I guarantee you 821 of those tips were vetted. Yeah. Or verified.
1: You're t- So what it takes to manage that is an entire team to manage that. And, and I don't know the number of, but I can only imagine it's it's a large team. And then you're vetting probably voicemails, emails, text oh, messages, yeah. phone calls. And, and think about those 821. There are going to be... I, i I know people that have worked tip lines and heard all the stories, but you know, there's people calling in tips that are nowhere where this incident is happening, mm-hmm. but someone's got to look into that. This, a tip yeah. can come in three hours away. Someone's got to look at that. Then you're getting, uh, people calling in tips that are like psychics or, or have, or what they feel they have, like Special powers in in their visualizing things because uh, there are departments that utilize yeah those type of um, I'm drawing holistic yeah yeah so you have people calling in and 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 just think there some of the people that answer these calls not everybody's perfect they're they're listening to these calls and, and I'm hoping that they're taking everyone very serious but I know that's not reality but you're getting people calling in saying all kinds of stuff and then the crazy people calling in so you got to vet all
0: that. Yeah. And what happens with tips when you have um, a huge manhunt like that, and these tips are coming in, it, it may, you may get someone that calls in a description of that guy, which I, I don't even want to know how many of those came in. And yeah. Everyone is going to start flooding over to those locations. And you got to have a lot of discipline not to do that. I mean, we experienced that here when we were doing our manhunt, you would get a, a, um, a description of the suspect by a citizen, and it, it seemed like everyone wanted to just drop what they were doing and go running over there because they felt like it was credible and it turned out not to be. So a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, well tips drive what's the word, word I'm looking for. Um, self-discipline yeah. comes into play on these because if you're assigned to search a certain area, that is where you're supposed to be and stay. Yeah. Not to squirrel off and go somewhere else because a tip came in. Yeah. So, you know, that stuff's coming out. I mean, I, I don't want to know how many, possible sightings, uh, tips they got. I mean, I'm sure it was just endless. Oh
1: yeah. So, oh, well, and we do need to put point out on the tips. The, the suspect's family was very helpful to law enforcement. Yeah. They, they, we have to put that out there that the, the suspect's family was very supportive of that. And, and in fact, the first three phone calls that they got, the police department got was family members saying, this is who this person is. Yeah. So please, if you're out there and you're in that area, just recognize that the the family is the one that really helped helped capture. This. Yeah, I think they
0: put a lot of puzzle pieces together yeah. and, and identified that it was their yeah it was their family member involved in this. So yeah, well, Man. we we won't belabor this, but a lot happened in a very short amount of time. A lot of manpower, hours, resources you name it, went into this. And, and I do want people to know and understand that are not in law enforcement or involved in this type of world, um, just exactly what it takes to manage something like this and that it's not as easy what you probably perceive to see on TV. Um, it's huge. And a lot of people suffer um, from incidents like this, right? Not only just the family members of the folks that are deceased, but the people that were there the people that witnessed it, the cops that had to respond to it, all the first responders that responded that were involved in it, the medical staff. I mean, the list goes on and on of who is affected by by these types of events.
1: Yeah, and we're giving our perspective of this and the media is going to leave in a couple of days and they're not going to cover the story anymore. They may no. do some, maybe the local media might highlight, but nationally, a couple of days, they're going to be gone and moving on to something different. But this call for that community in those agencies, that's going to be going on for a long time. Just simply that scene, well, there's those two scenes, but those scenes are going to be active for days. And then once all the evidence is taken out, you have to clean that scene. So what the state of Maine was doing is they're saying, hey, we are not going to remove all the evidence and just turn this back over to the owners, which happens a lot. There's a retired police officer that owns a, a company. And I, I want to find this. Give me once. Um, oh, he, his, he's a retired police officer. His name is Mike Howarin, And he owns the trauma service cleanup company out of Maine. And And he this guy has stepped up. He owns a, a trauma cleaning company, which means if there's blood or anything like that, his company goes in and, and takes care of that. He has volunteered his company and services to go and clean both those scenes. Wow. Which is awesome. I mean, that that's- I mean, that's how you, that's, that's a community coming yeah, together. Yeah. That's a
0: community coming together for sure. And then, yeah, this, this will be a long lasting, this will be forever.
1: Oh yeah. And then you have the hospitals, like there's people that are injured that have a long road ahead of some of them. Those officers, you talk about the investigations and search warrants. Those aren't done. They still have,
0: Oh gosh, no.
1: Tons of investigations. And then after action reports, debriefs. debriefs yeah. The, all the command systems are going to have to be broken down. It, that's just, I mean, it's all, almost a longer process. I mean, months.
0: I think the investigation itself will be months and months until yeah. the scene comes to a close and, and I think it's important too, that people know that just because he's dead, it doesn't mean the investigation's done. And that this scene and, and crime scene and everything involved in it is going to get handled the same as if he was alive. It doesn't matter. It'd be just because he's deceased. I don't want people to think that, Everything just stops, and you know everyone just goes about their day. No, this everything still gets managed the same as if he were, were still alive. So I think that's important to note as well. And this is just going to be something that is going to impact that community in the state of Maine for forever.
1: Yeah, this is this is a major, and I think what makes this different is it was two active shooter mass casualty incidents, and the suspect was able to flee both of those and was on the run for a period of time. But it is, it's very impressive that within two minutes, the first officer was there. And then within an hour and four minutes, they had released photos of the suspect. Yeah.
0: Yep. I think all law enforcement and the community um, involved in this, I think they did a fantastic job. And I, I hate to say it, but I, you know, this, won't, this isn't gonna be the last one that happens. And I think departments and states are learning from these types of events so that when it happens to them, they can be more better prepared. And I wanna say, I think the town of Lewiston and, and the entire state of Maine was, I think they were prepared to handle this.
1: Yeah, it was It was a very good response. The police chief, all the press conferences was very well done. And the police chief, even one of the last press conferences that I saw, wanted the families and the victims to be remembered. And he, he mentioned that, and showed pictures of all the victims that had been deceased and wanted everybody to recognize and know them, to remember them. And what he did not want is people to know the names of the injured. And he did that out of the respect for them and their families so they could heal, which I think was was uh, a very, very tactful, tactful speech. He yeah. did a great job.
0: Yeah. And I, I think we'll leave this on, you know, for the, for the entire community, the state of Maine, all the families affected by this. I mean, our condolences. It's a tragic event. And, um, we, we just hope that, uh, you, you know, everyone can heal from it. So do you have anything else to add? Yeah. I think we wanted to give our perspective on this
1: and that it's not what the media covers is maybe a 32nd of what it's a fraction of what actually yeah. goes on. And then for all the officers that are out there listening, thank you for your service. Thank you for being safe and for protecting all of us. And please, that is the importance of training. The state of, of uh, Maine clearly was prepared. So yeah. please be safe.
0: And you see these uh, signs here behind me, Savage Training Group and TacOps. Ops. Um, these are credited training businesses that are going around the country and training officers for events like this to be better prepared. So please go to savagetraininggroup.com I'm not even just pitching that because we're a part of it or they help sponsor the show. It's none of that. It's, it's, we believe in their training. They're out there trying to make cops better. And what Scott Savage has done with that training group is phenomenal. And they were literally teaching an active shooter class in the state of Idaho and Boise when an active shooter happened at the mall while they were there teaching. So this stuff can't happen where you work. It doesn't matter if you're in a small agency, a large agency, big community. It doesn't matter. This stuff is happening everywhere. We're seeing it. You got to get trained up on it. You have to be trained in order to handle and manage these types of things. So,
1: yep. Please be safe in state of Maine. Our,
0: our thoughts are with you. All right. Until next time, guys, we will catch you on the next one. Thank you.